Welcome to Spark Science, where we explore stories of human curiosity. I'm your host, Regina Barber DeGraff. However, this episode, I am not going to be your host. I know. You'll enjoy it, though, because this episode, we are featuring student podcasts. As many of you know, I'm an astrophysicist at Western Washington University. But I also teach courses in science communication. This episode of Spark Science will be featuring final projects from one of these courses. Each student podcast features a story about their journey into science. I'm really proud of them all, and I hope you enjoy listening to their work. Science, technology, engineering, and math. If I asked you what kind of person would fit those categories, who do you picture? Would it be someone that has kinky curly hair paired with dark skin? Would it be someone who doesn't conform to traditional labels of gender? Or would it be someone who is white and male, clad in a lab coat? Welcome to this day's episode called Beyond the Lab Coat, where we will be focusing on inclusion and diversity in the STEM community. My name is Leo Izaguirre, and I am an undergraduate student studying biochemistry at Western Washington University. Growing up as a person of color and as a woman, media has told me that scientists and engineers or anyone related to STEM should be white and male. So now that I am a part of this community, I've always wondered why this is the case and if there's some way to change it. Today, I am interviewing Dr. Adrian Wang, a biology professor here at Western, and we'll discuss what it's like to be part of a minority group in STEM. Keep in mind that these experiences don't represent everyone, but are still important to help illustrate a general trend. I'm Adrian Wang. I'm a relatively new professor here at Western. I'm just finishing my second year. I came here after doing a postdoc at the University of Washington. And prior to that, I did my PhD at the University of Michigan. Prior to that, I did my undergrad at the University of California, Berkeley. And so when I first started there, I did not think I would stay in science. So I finished my undergrad in molecular biology and worked job, different jobs. Like I worked some lab jobs, I worked like a job in industry. So I worked a little bit before going to graduate school. So why did you choose STEM in general? I really liked the idea of trying to get at truth. And I felt like one thing that I could study and feel good about was just trying to understand the world around me. So that's really what brought me into studying hard sciences. And yeah, just trying to spend my time on this earth, trying to figure things out. Have you felt any adversity because of your identity in STEM or not? (laughs) I mean, I would say that I have, but at the same time, I recognize that I've probably had it pretty easy, you know, being and you know, Asians are not considered underrepresented um, minorities in STEM and women aren't really technically either. However, I will say that, you know, there are a lot of experiences that really shaped me. So after I graduated, I got a job in a lab at UCSF Mm -hmm. because I was kind of like, okay, well, I majored in molecular neuroscience, like I should maybe just get a job that has to do with that and see what that's like, right? And so that was like being a lab tech. So I joined a lab at the University of California, San Francisco, and the lab was huge, and it was all men. I think there were probably about 18 men and me. 
And it was not a great experience for me. It was very formative. I did have some great experiences there and I still have friends from that lab to this day, but the PI of the lab was not a great guy. My advice to you is that just be aware that lab culture is very much set by the head of the lab. And so even though I wasn't directly working for him, I was working for like a postdoc. I still have certain homebacks. I don't really know how to make coffee in a coffee machine and like a coffee maker. <laughs> and part of that is because when I started there, everyone just assumed that I would make coffee for everyone. What? <laughs> so I absolutely, I just never made coffee there. I just always bought my coffee. Yeah. And so whenever anybody was like, oh, hey, Adrian, can you clean up the coffee area or something? I'd be like, I don't know why, because yeah. I buy my coffee. I don't use that area at all. That's on you guys. So there were like weird things like that. Certain people who would ask me to like make coffees and stuff. And that yeah. wasn't my job, but it fell to me because, or they looked to me to do it because I think partly because I was a woman and also because I was, you know, kind of low man on the totem pole. Although there were several of us, there were several lab techs that were at the same level and I just happened to be the only woman. So Dang. how did you bounce back from that? Or did you just look past it? <laughs> no, I, after that, I, I was like, this is terrible. If this is what academics is, there's no way. So I left that job and that's when I was like, oh, well, I'm definitely not going to graduate school. I'm going to go work in industry. So I got a desk job at a small biotech company outside of San Francisco and I was doing internal sales and technical support for them. So yeah, so I pretty much swore off of science after that. Oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is terrible. I don't want to be part of this. What got you back in? So working it for the biotech was, you know, informative and I kind of realized that I really missed the spirit of exploration. I mean, it was a well-paying job. Yeah. I could totally have stayed and probably worked my way up. I mean, first of all, I hated sales. So that was like <laughs> not a good fit for me. But I felt like it seemed kind of boring. I don't know. Like I, it didn't really like it's light my fire. It was kind of like I had these two kind of extreme experiences where it's, do you work to live or do you live to work? The imposter syndrome mm -hmm. of not feeling like you don't belong in a certain group. Because I know that for women in STEM and for minorities in STEM, they always feel that. And so that's why they're intimidated to go further into STEM or just pursue higher education for that. Mm -hmm. like, have you felt that imposter syndrome when you were younger? Oh, I still, I always feel it. Yeah, I always feel it. And I, I try to identify it now when I feel it. When I was a student, I did not speak up very much and I still don't speak up that much when I'm in meetings with other professors. I really admire a lot of <laughs> students that I are just people that I see who have a lot of confidence. I'm always like, wow, what would it feel like to have that kind of confidence? Yeah. <laughs> Whereas I'm more likely if I have a question instead of being like, this is like a valid question. I'm always mm -hmm. like, oh, it must be some lack of understanding on my part. I must not know enough about this to be able to understand what they were saying and stuff like that. So I definitely feel it. And then it kind of gets reinforced, right, with evaluations, for instance, student yeah. evaluation. I think it's pretty well documented that women and people of color get consistently lower student evaluations. And yeah. so I teach the genetics lab, for instance, and I have every time I've taught it, I have co-taught it. So I've taught it four times now. So one time I taught it with Carol Trent. I don't know if you were here when she was here. But the other three times I've co-taught it with white men. 
of varying ages. And it's very apparent. Mm -hmm. Their experience with their students is very different than what I have, you know? So for instance, you know, we were talking about grading these worksheets and that one guy was like, well, I think we should just be like, did they do it or not? Yeah. And I was like, uh, I don't really think I feel like I could do that because I feel like I need to give them the expectations of what I'm going to be grading them on in the exams and quizzes. If they have something totally wrong and I'm just like full points and then I give it on an exam and then instead I'm like, no, this is all wrong. I know the students will come back at me and be like, that's not fair. I got a full point, you know, like that kind of thing. So in a lot of ways, I feel like for better or worse, some of my teaching is kind of protecting myself from the pushback Mm -hmm. that I'm much more likely to get from students than older white male professor will. Yeah. And it's pretty apparent when we co-teach and the things that happen and the things that students bring up to me and how, yeah. So for better or worse, that's what it it is. I actually felt that um, because I'm a tutor. And so compared to like my male counterparts and I, I tutor physics, so... Some guys, so they come in, and then when they ask for help, they're like, oh, are you sure? Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm qualified to do this, so... No, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, and I mean, and it affects how you feel about yourself, and it affects how you present yourself. For instance, another thing is, I know some professors are, you know, call me Adrian. The advice that I've been given and I've gone with, I feel like I may draw a harder line. I may come off a little bit harsher. And I ask my students in class to call me Professor Wang or Dr. Wang. And I try to solidify the fact that I have accomplished something and I am qualified to be here. I think I definitely get punished more for where I feel like sometimes students expect me to be more motherly towards them. Yeah. And then when I'm not, I think it makes them angrier towards me. So I've definitely experienced things like that. That's unfortunate. I would like to be more collegial and, and we'll see what, you know, where I end up as my career keeps going. But for now, I very much am still trying to establish that I have authority and I know what I'm talking about and I'm qualified to do this. Totally. Yeah. I've spent a lot of years studying this stuff. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, even when I first started coming, like teaching though, I hear I was, I would be so scared starting classes. I'd be like, Oh my God, what if they know more than me? Yeah. You know? <laughs> and other, you know, other people that I would talk to are like, are you crazy? Like you've been, you've gone to grad, you know, like you've yeah. just been working in this field for so long. It would be impossible for an undergraduate to know more than you. But I still like, I caught off and sometimes students ask questions and I'm like, oh my God, they know more than me. They know something that I don't know. I don't know about that. And then, you know, like yeah. when I look into it, I'm like, no, actually I was right. So yeah. I do do second guess myself a lot. Yeah. Still, I'm trying not to, but... That actually hits home because that's me for tutoring. Because for me, I think I've started avoiding physics questions because of that. (laughs) And then I realized, oh, wait, I already know how to do this. Yeah, you're like, wait, I was right. Yeah. I mean, you see it too. Like, what used to drive me crazy was in my old lab, one of these male-dominated labs. We'd all be talking, and I would say something. I would give a suggestion or something. And then, like, five minutes later, my friend Jason would give the exact same suggestion. And people would be like oh my God, that's a really good idea. I still remember at least a couple of times where I was like, hold on, everyone, just a second. Because that is exactly what I just said five minutes ago. (laughs) And nobody said anything about it. But now Jason says it. It's like this, you know, genius idea. Yeah. Oh my God. So I don't know. I think my lab started getting tired of me. It felt like I was some sort of like feminist crusader. But I felt like it was, as one of the only women in the lab, I felt like it was my duty to point out 
these things to these guys because nobody else was. They all just kind of like sit around patting each other on the back. And I'm like, isn't that fair? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's, I don't know. It's definitely still around. Yeah. Do you think it's getting better What from what you've seen or? I think on campuses like Western, mm-hmm. it is getting better. I think that, or at least there's awareness and at least people are, whether they're actually internalizing you know, their own biases, implicit biases or not, is not clear. But at yeah. least there's conversation about it and there is kind of directed focus on it. I worry a little bit that it's a lot of, you know, just talk. Yeah. I do worry. <laughs> but I haven't been here that long. So I've seen a lot of talk and yeah. the hope is that, you know, change comes, follows that. So I'm still hopeful that I will start to see change. But even having the talks are better than not. So, I mean, though, I would say, like, big research universities, I don't know that those conversations are even occurring. Each lab's kind of, like, it's its own culture, right? Mm -hmm. Which is why the PI is so important in forming that culture. And so, you know, and they're all, like, these little kind of small businesses that are all operating underneath the umbrella of this university. Yeah. But, like, in full-on research labs... There's no real training or cohesion with the rest of the university. You know, everyone's just kind of like doing their own work. So in those situations, in the labs that I came from, no, these conversations aren't happening. Nobody cares. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's just kind of like, can you do good science? And then you can do good science. After talking with Dr. Wang, it just solidified the things that I've been noticing. Though STEM is great when it comes to trying to find the truth of the world and creating cool things, it's easy to forget the humanity aspect of it. There are people beyond the theories and inventions, people beyond the stereotypical lab coat, so I think it's about time to change our personal biases and see potential in anyone who wants to be part of STEM. Thank you for listening. This podcast was edited and produced by me, Cleo Izagire. Music by Silent Partner in partnership with Western Washington University and KMRE. And special thanks to Dr. Adrian Wang for being our amazing guest today. You're listening to Spark Science, where we're featuring student podcasts. You just heard a story about questioning one's path into biology. And now we have another student exploring the possibility of shifting fields. Let's give it a listen. Do you know what you're doing with your life? Because I sure don't. Hi, my name is Cassidy Haleska, and I am an undergraduate student studying environmental science at Western Washington University. Today, I'd like to talk about science and engineering. In high school, I remember my AP physics teacher stopping me after class one day and asking me what I was going to study in college. I told him I was going to study film or theater, because those were my plans at the time, and he looked back at me shocked, like, what? I thought you were going to study engineering or something. I had never really imagined myself in a STEM field until that point. Fast forward four years later, and now I'm a STEM major. As I finish up my third year of my undergrad, I've been thinking a lot about what's next. I've thought about applying to environmental engineering programs, but as an environmental science major, engineering sounds a bit daunting. 
I've been meeting more and more people here who have switched around between engineering and science, so I thought I would use this opportunity to explore this idea of switching between the two fields and figure out the benefits and struggles of it all, and hopefully in the end get a little closer to figuring out what I want to do with my life. First, I interviewed Kathleen Hosa. She's a geology student working in the Mars lab here at Western. She got her bachelor's degree at MIT in aerospace engineering, and now she's using that knowledge and that background as she switches more onto the science side of things. Hi, Kathleen. Welcome. The first question I have for you is just wondering if you can tell me a little bit more about your experience with engineering and science and what your story is. Yeah, so I did get my undergraduate degree in aerospace engineering, and I did an internship with Curiosity Mars rover at JPL. So I was really diving into some problems about the rover hardware and really enjoyed that a lot. When I was transitioning to graduate school, I was really wanting to be in Western Washington and heard wonderful things about Western in particular. So I was really interested in seeing if I could figure out a way to come to Western. When I saw what Melissa's research was, that she worked with Curiosity, I like right away thought that was going to be awesome. It's been a very interesting transition. There are a lot of similarities between how engineers and scientists think about problems. Um, there's also definitely some differences. I think with geologists in particular, there are not a whole lot of controlled experiments that you can do, like geologic processes happen on very long timescales. We can't make them. Uh, and there's a lot fewer concrete answers. With an engineering problem, you like know when you're finished because it's when the thing works. With a science question, there's just always more questions. So I think those are kind of two of the biggest shifts I've seen. That being said, I think there's a lot more similarity than differences, just a lot of interest in figuring out how things work. You want to go back into engineering, right? So... Tell me a little bit about that. So I haven't really felt like I had to leave it behind at all, which has been great. Yeah, Melissa has been really, really supportive of helping me find a project where instrument development has been a really big part of it. So my thesis centers around measuring viewing geometry effects on reflectance spectra for weathered encoding rocks. So viewing geometry effects refers to how your reflectance spectra change when you're looking at the material from different angles and when the light source is positioned at different angles. So I built an instrument that will precisely position a light source and a detector and a target material. And I got to write some control software for that. So I've been able to do this like really pretty significant engineering project and I haven't felt like I had to leave it behind at all. Um, I am going to be working as a systems engineer after I graduate, and one of the projects that I'll likely be working on is actually an upgraded version of this same kind of instrument. Wow. So it's been there's been a lot of continuity, I felt like, in my educational path, and it's been really fun to just get to sort of like add in this extra component of the science that I was kind of missing before. When I was working as an intern at JPL doing stuff with the rover's drill mechanism, we got piles of rocks that would just be dropped off to us by the geologists, and they wouldn't tell us anything about them. So we had like no context for what we were doing, and I really, really love getting to learn all the geology behind some of the, the projects that I was working on before, and it's been 
very, very interesting to get to understand a little bit more of the motivation and thought processes behind the engineering projects. So I'm trying to talk to other people who also have backgrounds in engineering and science. And do you think that that is something that draws people to getting experience in both? I think they're just really closely tied together. I think a lot of times if you're trying to answer a science question, you you come to an answer of like, wow, I wish I had this really cool machine or tool or robot that would help me answer this question. And I think oftentimes when you're working on those robots, you naturally wonder like what does this thing do anyway um you know like especially i mean especially when you're doing engineering for science related projects i think they're just so closely tied together and a lot of the thought processes and excitement that people get from science questions and engineering questions i think they're really closely related the interview with kathleen left me feeling like i needed another perspective So I interviewed Dr. Rebecca Bunn. She is a professor in the environmental science program here at Western Washington University. She started with civil engineering and then switched to environmental engineering and then into environmental science. Though I'd like to go the other way, from science into engineering, I still thought her story might provide some guidance and that she'd be a good resource. So you started as an engineer. You got your bachelor's and your master's in engineering, right? So why did you switch to science? Like, what's the story behind that? Hi. (laughs) I'd be happy to tell you about that. Yes, it's true. I got my undergraduate degree in civil engineering, and then I actually knew that I didn't want to be a straight civil engineer. I liked the early classes quite a bit, but my upper-level classes was not enjoying. But I was too scared to switch into a science or biology, which was kind of what I thought I wanted to do, because I thought without knowing or having anyone advise me, it just seemed like too big of a leap to make. So I actually looked around for a master's program that was in engineering, but was working in natural systems, which felt like a good bridge. Mm -hmm. And I ended up working on contamination and groundwater. And then I worked as an environmental consultant. And I worked right alongside environmental scientists. So there was not a lot that separated us. I got paid a little bit more. And I had more of a quantitative background. But we did the same work side by side. But it turned out that I didn't really like environmental consulting either. I really missed that sort of search for new knowledge. Mm -hmm. So working in consulting, I was applying techniques that were well understood and had been used a lot, which is what you do when you're trying to make progress and clean up things But I really was excited about the idea of like finding new techniques and trying out new things. And I thought, well, I would go back to school if I found something, like if I could work with plants and I found someone I wanted to work with. And all of that lined up and I ended up studying plants growing in the thermal areas down in Yellowstone. And I started studying the symbiosis they form with soil fungi and how that might help them live in stressful environments. I was just so excited that I had finally found something that I was really interested in. Mm -hmm. Because for so long, I was just doing the things I was supposed to do and thought, well, I guess that's as much enjoyment as you get out of work or you get out of school. And so when I found something I was actually passionate about, it totally changed everything. What are some challenges that you faced when you were switching fields from engineering into science? Definitely felt... Uh, intimidated and underprepared. I knew I had really strong quantitative skills, but I didn't have a background in science. So I solved that by sitting in on a lot of undergraduate classes when I was a PhD student. I took ecology and biology and plant systematics and 
all these classes I had not had as an engineering student. And still, though, I don't have this strong ecology background that many environmental scientists do, but I think I've come to realize that there's just a really broad range of what an environmental scientist is. And I still feel intimidated when I'm around people who have a really strong ecology knowledge. Have you used your background in engineering in your science at all? And how have you done that? Leaving engineering, which is a really applied system, and the work I did as a master's student was really uh, repeatable studies. I would do three trials and I would find a mean and standard deviation and I was done. There was really no need to do complicated statistical inference. It was so clear what the patterns were, which is part of why I found it not that engaging because I kind of knew what was going to happen before I did it. It's just no one had done it yet, so it needed to be recorded and published. When I started studying these plants growing in the thermal areas, the system was so complicated. I was growing plants with different kinds of soil, with different treatments, and suddenly I needed more statistics. And I had a strong quantitative background, so I went over to the statistics department and started taking a whole bunch of classes and I was working towards a minor in statistics with my um, PhD. And that is how, I mean, that sort of opened that door up for me. So because I was so comfortable with quantitative reasoning and numbers, I was able to really easily walk into that applied statistics. And I got really excited about just that all by itself, like the usefulness. And statistics continues to evolve as environmental science evolves because it has to. So that's sort of a second tier of what I'm interested in research is applying statistics to these ecology questions and the techniques we need and things that work well and things that don't. So that was a challenge in some sense because I didn't have, I filled up my knowledge with this quantitative base and I missed things like ecology and biology, but then it opened another door that's been really rewarding. Like interdisciplinary STEM in general, do you think that that gives you a broader perspective on things that you're doing? Interdisciplinary is important, Mm -hmm. but there's only so much any individual can do. So I think recognizing that it always comes at a trade-off. We can have breadth or we can have depth or we can have a little bit of both. But I think the most important thing is to be communicating with people in different disciplines who have different expertise, but you have overlapping interests and forming strong teams that can solve problems because no one of us can do everything you need to do on any of these research projects now. What do you recommend to someone who is looking to switch fields? I mean, I guess don't be afraid to try something. You're probably more capable than you think you are. That said, don't be naive if you're going into an environment where you know that you don't have, say, the ecology knowledge or the quantitative skills, then you know you're going to need to spend some time making up that knowledge, at least to a certain level. But in some ways, I wish that I hadn't waited, that I had tried to make a switch earlier, but I was, for some reason, seems silly now, but I was just scared to do it. I mean, no, that's fair, because I am also very scared. That's all my questions for you. So yeah, thanks for meeting with me today. So that was my interview with Rebecca. And after all of my conversations, more than anything... I felt excited to continue my journey in STEM. Although I'm still not sure where I will end up, I can't wait to work alongside a team of people to solve problems. I know that I will need to take some risks to get where I want to go, and it might be challenging, but the prospect of working in STEM, regardless of the field, has me feeling very enthusiastic. 
My name is Cassidy Haleska, and this has been my final project for my science communication class at Western Washington University. Thank you for listening. This podcast was produced, recorded, and edited by Cassidy Haleska in partnership with Western Washington University and KMRE. Special thanks to Kathleen Hosa and Dr. Rebecca Bunn for their interviews, as well as Dr. Melissa Rice and Dr. Regina Barber-DeGraff for teaching me all I know about science communication this quarter and giving me the skills I needed to complete this podcast. Special thanks also to my lovely friends who listened and gave me feedback on this podcast. And once again, thank you listeners. Today's episode was recorded in Bellingham, Washington by students taking science communication in the spring of 2019. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE and Western Washington University. Our producers are Suzanne Blaze, Robert Clark, and myself, Regina Barber-DeGraff. Our audio engineers are Zara Coakley, Julia Thorpe, and Hannah Clark. Script support was done by Aaron Howard and Ariel Shiley. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com. If there's a science idea you're curious about, send us a message on Twitter or Facebook at Spark Science Now. Thank you for listening to Spark Science. Spark Science.